Chapter Two of the Promised Land. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Promised Land by Mary Anton. Chapter Two. Children of the Law. As I look back today, I see within the wall raised around my birthplace by the vigilance of the police, another wall, higher, thicker, more impenetrable. This is the wall which the Tsar, with all his minions, could not shake. The priests, with their instruments of torture, could not pierce. The mob, with their firebrands, could not destroy. This wall within the wall is the religious integrity of the Jews, a fortress erected by the prisoners of the Pale, in defiance of their jailers, a stronghold built of the ruins of their pillaged homes, cemented with the blood of their murdered children. Harassed on every side, thwarted in every normal effort, pent up within narrow limits, all but dehumanized, the Russian Jew fell back upon the only thing that never failed him, his hereditary faith in God. In the study of the Torah he found the balm for all his wounds. The minute observance of traditional rites became the expression of his spiritual cravings, and in the dream of a restoration to Palestine he forgot the world. What did it matter to us, on a Sabbath or festival, when our life was centered in the synagogue? What Tsar sat on the throne? What evil counselors whispered in his ear? They were concerned with revenues and policies, and ephemeral trifles of all sorts, while we were intent on renewing our ancient covenant with God, to the end that his promise to the world should be fulfilled, and his justice overwhelm the nations. On a Friday afternoon, the stores and markets closed early, the clatter of business ceased, the dust of worry was laid, and the Sabbath peace flooded the quiet streets. No hovel so mean but what its casement sent out its consecrated ray, so that a wayfarer passing in the twilight saw the Spirit of God brooding over the lowly roof. Care and fear and shrewishness dropped like a mask from every face, eyes dimmed with weeping, kindled with inmost joy. Wherever a head bent over a sacred page, there rested the halo of God's presence. Not on festivals alone, but also on the common days of the week. We lived by the law that had been given us through our teacher Moses. How to eat, how to bathe, how to work. Everything had been written down for us, and we strove to fulfill the law. The study of the Torah was the most honored of all occupations, and they who engaged in it the most revered of all men. My memory does not go back to a time when I was too young to know that God had made the world, and had appointed teachers to tell the people how to live in it. First came Moses, and after him the great rabbis, and finally the Rav of Polotsk, who read all day in the sacred books, so that he could tell me and my parents and my friends what to do whenever we were in doubt. If my mother cut up a chicken and found something wrong in it, some hurt or mark that should not be, she sent the housemaid with it to the Rav, and I ran along, and saw the Rav look in his big books, and whatever he decided was right. If he called the chicken Treffa, I must not eat of it. No, not if I had to starve. And the Rav knew about everything about going on a journey, about business, about marrying, about purifying vessels for Passover. Another great teacher was the Dayan, who heard people's quarrels and settled them according to the law, so that they should not have to go to the Gentile courts. The Gentiles were false, judges and witnesses and all. They favored the rich man against the poor, the Christian against the Jew. The Dayan always gave true judgments. 
Nahum Rabinovich, the richest man in Polotsk, could not win a case against a servant-maid, unless he were in the right. Besides the Rav and the Dayan, there were other men whose callings were holy. The Shahat, who knew how cattle and fowls should be killed. The Hazan, and the other officers of the synagogue. The teachers of Hebrew and their pupils. It did not matter how poor a man was. He was to be respected and set above other men, if he were learned in the law. In the synagogue scores of men sat all day long over the Hebrew books, studying and disputing from early dawn till candles were brought in at night, and then as long as the candles lasted. They could not take time for anything else, if they meant to become great scholars. Most of them were strangers in Polotsk, and had no home except the synagogue. They slept on benches, on tables, on the floor. They picked up their meals wherever they could. They had come from distant cities, so as to be under good teachers in Polotsk, and the townspeople were proud to support them by giving them food and clothing, and sometimes money to visit their homes on holidays. But the poor students came in such numbers that there were not enough rich families to provide for all, so that some of them suffered privation. You could pick out a poor student in a crowd by his pale face and shrunken form. There was almost always a poor student taking meals at our house. He was assigned a certain day, and on that day my grandmother took care to have something especially good for dinner. It was a very shabby guest who sat down with us at the table, but we children watched him with respectful eyes. Grandmother had told us that he was a Lamden, scholar, and we saw something holy in the way he ate his cabbage. Not every man could hope to be a Rav, but no Jewish boy was allowed to grow up without at least a rudimentary knowledge of Hebrew. The scantiest income had to be divided so as to provide for the boy's tuition. To leave a boy without a teacher was a disgrace upon the whole family, to the remotest relative. For the children of the destitute there was a free school, supported by the charity of the pious. And so every boy was sent to Heder, Hebrew school, almost as soon as he could speak, and usually he continued to study until his confirmation, at thirteen years of age or as much longer as his talent and ambition carried him. My brother was five years old when he entered on his studies. He was carried to the heater, on the first day, covered over with a praying shawl, so that nothing unholy should look on him, and he was presented with a bun, on which were traced, in honey, these words, The Torah left by Moses is the heritage of the children of Jacob. After a boy entered heater, he was the hero of the family. He was served before the other children at table, and nothing was too good for him. If a family were very poor, all the girls might go barefoot, but the heater boy must have shoes. He must have a plate of hot soup, though the others ate dry bread. When the Rebbe, teacher, came on Sabbath afternoon to examine the boy in the hearing of the family, everybody sat around the table and nodded with satisfaction if he read his portion well, and he was given a great saucer full of preserves and was praised, and blessed, and made much of. No wonder, he said, in his morning prayer, I thank thee, Lord, for not having created me a female. It was not much to be a girl, you see. Girls could not be scholars and rabbana. I went to my brother's heater sometimes, to bring him his dinner, and saw how the boys studied. They sat on benches around the table, with their hats on, of course, and the sacred fringes hanging beneath their jackets. The Rebbe sat at an end of the table, rehearsing two or three of the boys who were studying the same part, 
pointing out the words with his wooden pointer, so as not to lose the place. Everybody read aloud, the smallest boys repeating the alphabet in a sing-song, while the advanced boys read their portions in a different sing-song. And everybody raised his voice to its loudest, so as to drown the other voices. The good boys never took their eyes off their page, except to ask the Rebbe a question. But the naughty boys stared around the room, and kicked each other under the table, till the Rebbe caught them at it. He had a ruler for striking the bad boys on the knuckles, and in a corner of the room leaned a long birch wand for pupils who would not learn their lessons. The boys came to Heder before nine in the morning, and remained until eight or nine in the evening. Stupid pupils, who could not remember the lesson, sometimes had to stay till ten. There was an hour for dinner and play at noon. Good little boys played quietly in their places, but most of the boys ran out of the house and jumped and yelled and quarreled. There was nothing in what the boys did in Heater that I could not have done, if I had not been a girl. For a girl it was enough if she could read her prayers in Hebrew, and follow the meaning by the Yiddish translation at the bottom of the page. It did not take long to learn this much. A couple of terms with a rebetzin, female teacher, and after that she was done with books. A girl's real schoolroom was her mother's kitchen. There she learned to bake and cook and manage, to knit, sew, and embroider, also to spin and weave, in country places. And while her hands were busy, her mother instructed her in the laws regulating a pious Jewish household, and in the conduct proper for a Jewish wife. For, of course, every girl hoped to be a wife. A girl was born for no other purpose. How soon it came, the pious burden of wifehood. One day the girl was playing forfeits with her laughing friends. The next day she is missed from the circle. She has been summoned to a conference with the Shadchan, marriage broker, who has been for months past advertising her housewifely talents, her piety, her good looks, and her marriage portion, among families with marriageable sons. Her parents are pleased with the son-in-law proposed by the Shadchan, and now, at the last, the girl is brought in, to be examined and appraised by the prospective parents-in-law. If the negotiations go off smoothly, the marriage contract is written, presents are exchanged between the engaged couple, through their respective parents, and all that is left the girl of her maidenhood is a period of busy preparation for the wedding. If the girl is well-to-do, it is a happy interval, spent in visits to the drapers and tailors, in collecting linens and feather-beds, and vessels of copper and brass. The former playmates come to inspect the trousseau, enviously fingering the silks and velvets of the bride-elect. The happy heroine tries on frocks and mantles before her glass, blushing at references to the wedding-day, and to the question, How do you like the bridegroom? She replies, How should I know? There was such a crowd at the betrothal that I didn't see him. Marriage was a sacrament with us Jews in the pale. To rear a family of children was to serve God. Every Jewish man and woman had a part in the fulfillment of the ancient promise given to Jacob that his seed should be abundantly scattered over the earth. Parenthood, therefore, was the great career. But while men, in addition to begetting, might busy themselves with the study of the law, woman's only work was motherhood. To be left an old maid became, accordingly, the greatest misfortune that could threaten a girl, and to ward off that calamity the girl and her family, to the most distant relatives, would strain every nerve, whether by contributing to her dowry, or hiding her defects from the marriage-broker, or praying and fasting that God might send her a husband. Not only must all the children of a family be mated, 
but they must marry in the order of their ages. A younger daughter must on no account marry before an elder. A houseful of daughters might be held up because the eldest failed to find favor in the eyes of prospective mothers-in-law. Not one of the others could marry till the eldest was disposed of. A cousin of mine was guilty of the disloyalty of wishing to marry before her elder sister, who was unfortunate enough to be rejected by one mother-in-law after another. My uncle feared that the younger daughter, who was of a firm and masterful nature, might carry out her plans, thereby disgracing her unhappy sister. Accordingly, he hastened to conclude an alliance with a family far beneath him, and the girl was hastily married to a boy, of whom little was known, beyond the fact that he was inclined to consumption. The consumptive tendency was no such horror, in an age when superstition was more in vogue than science. For one patient that went to a physician in Polotsk, there were ten who called in unlicensed practitioners and miracle workers. If my mother had an obstinate toothache that honored household remedies failed to relieve, she went to Devoshi, the pious woman, who cured by means of a flint and steel, and a secret prayer pronounced as the sparks flew up. During an epidemic of scarlet fever, we protected ourselves by wearing a piece of red woolen tape around the neck. Pepper and salt tied in the corner of a pocket was effective in warding off the evil eye. There were lucky signs, lucky dreams, spirits, and hobgoblins, a grisly collection, gathered by our wandering ancestors from the demonologies of Asia and Europe. Antiquated as our popular follies was the organization of our small society. It was a caste system, with social levels sharply marked off, and families united by clannish ties. The rich looked down on the poor, the merchants looked down on the artisans, and within the ranks of the artisans higher and lower grades were distinguished. A shoemaker's daughter could not hope to marry the son of a shopkeeper, unless she brought an extra-large dowry, and she had to make up her mind to be snubbed by the sisters-in-law and cousins-in-law all her life. One qualification only could raise a man above his social level, and that was scholarship. A boy born in the gutter need not despair of entering the houses of the rich, if he had a good mind and a great appetite for sacred learning. A poor scholar would be preferred in the marriage market to a rich ignoramus. In the phrase of our grandmothers, a boy stuffed with learning was worth more than a girl stuffed with banknotes. Simple piety unsupported by learning had a parallel value in the eyes of good families. This was especially true among the Hasidim, the sect of enthusiasts who set religious exaltation above rabbinical lore. Ecstasy in prayer and fantastic merriment on days of religious rejoicing raised a Hasid to a hero among his kind. My father's grandfather, who knew of Hebrew only enough to teach beginners, was famous through a good part of the pale for his holy life. Israel Kamanyer, he was called, from the village of Kamanya where he lived, and people were proud to establish even the most distant relationship with him. Israel was poor to the verge of beggary, but he prayed more than other people, never failed in the slightest observance and joined on Jews, shared his last crust with every beggar, and sat up nights to commune with God. His family connections included country peddlers, starving artisans, and ne'er-do-wells, but Israel was a Zadok, a man of piety, and the fame of his good life redeemed the whole wretched clan. When his grandson, my father, came to marry, he boasted his direct descent from Israel Kamanyer, and picked his bride from the best families. 
The little house may still be standing, which the pious Jews of Kamanya and the neighboring villages built for my great-grandfather, close on a century ago. He was too poor to build his own house, so the good people who loved him, and who were almost as poor as he, collected a few rubles among themselves, and bought a site, and built the house. Built, let it be known, with their own hands, for they were too poor to hire workmen. They carried the beams and boards on their shoulders, singing and dancing on the way, as they sang and danced at the presentation of a scroll to the synagogue. They hauled and sawed and hammered, till the last nail was driven home, and when they conducted the holy man to his new abode, the rejoicing was greater than at the crowning of a tsar. That little cabin was fit to be preserved as the monument to a species of idealism that has rarely been known outside the pale. What was the ultimate source of the pious enthusiasm that built my great-grandfather's house? What was the substance behind the show of the Judaism of the Pale? Stripped of its grotesque mask of forms, rites, and medieval superstitions, the religion of these fanatics was simply the belief that God was, had been, and ever would be, and that they, the children of Jacob, were his chosen messengers to carry his law to all the nations— Beneath the mountainous volumes of the Talmudists and commentators, the mosaic tablets remained intact. Out of the mazes of the Kabbalah, the pure doctrine of ancient Judaism found its way to the hearts of the faithful. Sects and schools might rise and fall, deafening the ears of the simple with the clamor of their disputes. Still the Jew, retiring within his own soul, heard the voice of the God of Abraham. Prophets, messiahs, miracle workers might have their day. Still the Jew was conscious that between himself and God no go-between was needed, that he, as well as every one of his million brothers, had his portion of God's work to do, and this close relation to God was the source of the strength that sustained the Jew through all the trials of his life in the Pale. Consciously or unconsciously, the Jew identified himself with the cause of righteousness on earth, and hence the heroism with which he met the battalions of tyrants. No empty forms could have impressed the unborn children of the Pale so deeply that they were prepared for willing martyrdom almost as soon as they were weaned from their mother's breast. The flame of the burning bush that had dazzled Moses still lighted the gloomy prison of the Pale. Behind the mummeries, ceremonials, and symbolic accessories, the object of the Jews' adoration was the face of God. This has been many times proved by those who escaped from the Pale, and excited by sudden freedom, thought to rid themselves, by one impatient effort, of every strand of their ancient bonds. Eager to be merged in the better world in which they found themselves, the escaped prisoners determined on a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of manner. They rejoiced in their transformation, thinking that every mark of their former slavery was obliterated. And then one day, caught in the vice of some crucial test, the Jew fixed his alarmed gaze on his inmost soul, and found there the image of his father's God. Merrily played the fiddlers at the wedding of my father, who was the grandson of Israel Kamanyer of sainted memory. The most pious men in Polotsk danced the night through, their earlocks dangling, the tails of their long coats flying in a pious ecstasy. Beggars swarmed among the bidden guests, sure of an easy harvest where so many hearts were melted by piety. The wedding jester excelled himself in apt allusions to the friends and relatives who brought up their wedding presents at his merry invitation. The sixteen-year-old bride, suffocated beneath her heavy veil, blushed unseen at the numerous healths drunk to her future sons and daughters. 
The whole town was aflutter with joy, because the pious scion of a godly race had found a pious wife, and a young branch of the tree of Judah was about to bear fruit. When I came to lie on my mother's breast, she sang me lullabies on lofty themes. I heard the names of Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah as early as the names of father, mother, and nurse. My baby soul was enthralled by sad and noble cadences, as my mother sang of my ancient home in Palestine, or mourned over the desolation of Zion. With the first rattle that was placed in my hand, a prayer was pronounced over me, a petition that a pious man might take me to wife, and a Messiah be among my sons. I was fed on dreams, instructed by means of prophecies, trained to hear and see mystical things that callous senses could not perceive. I was taught to call myself a princess, in memory of my forefathers who had ruled a nation. Though I went in the disguise of an outcast, I felt a halo resting on my brow. Sat upon by brutal enemies, unjustly hated, annihilated a hundred times, I yet arose and held my head high, sure that I should find my kingdom in the end, although I had lost my way in exile. For he who had brought my ancestors safe through a thousand perils was guiding my feet as well. God needed me, and I needed him, for we two together had a work to do, according to an ancient covenant, between him and my forefathers. This is the dream to which I was heir, in common with every sad-eyed child of the pale. This is the living seed which I found among my heirlooms, when I learned how to strip from them the prickly husk in which they were passed down to me. And what is the fruit of such seed as that, and whither lead such dreams? If it is mine to give the answer, let my words be true and brave. End of chapter 2